today, in the time that we have remaining, I want to make you as uncomfortable as I can. Because I believe that God, wherever you are with, on the sort of scale of belief in God or not, I believe that God wants to make us uncomfortable in our comfortable so that we might be of use to Him to shape the world for His good. So you ready to go? This Thursday, just before we jump into it, we have our regroup night. I want to talk about our vision, mission and values. And if there's three C's that we want to try and get across from 7.30 to 8.30, if you can just come for one hour, we'll try and make it an hour. We want to get across to you where we're heading as a leadership, communication, communication, communication. So this is your chance, okay, along the way for one hour. We're also going to partner and welcome some people in. The waters will be there for us to say, welcome you into the life of the community. It's not as though you haven't been involved for a long time now, but we've actually got a week that we can actually celebrate that as well. So there'll be some partnership things as well. This month, in the five circles below, we're talking about activating people and we're talking about shaping our city or shaping our world for God's good. I'm just going to jump in today. If you want to follow us, we're going to look at a book of the Bible by the name of Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible there, go halfway and then turn to the left. Or if you've got an iOS device, you want to follow with it. Um, Nehemiah, the shortest man in the Bible. Here we go. This is where it starts. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that was the most powerful city and space and state in the capital of the known Persian world at that time, in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now I want to hit the pause button here because there's a little bit of a, a backstory to this particular First chapter, first two verses that are listed. The backstory goes something like this. God called one man by the name of Abraham centuries before, made him a promise, said, if you trust me, I'm going to build you into a great people. And the one sole purpose of that great people by the name of Israel is going to be to reflect my presence and to reflect who I am back into the world around about. So that when people look at you, they're going to glimpse, get a glimpse of who I am the God who's creator over all things. And so some centuries later, they find themselves with a large, huge family in Egypt. And in the overlords of Pharaoh at the time, those Egyptians were oppressed. And so they called out to God and God answered them, raised up a leader by the name of Moses, led them out into the wilderness, eventually settled in the land of Canaan or modern day Palestine as we know it today. It's in that place that God gave them the same promise he gave them the same task. I want you to live amongst yourselves in such a way that when people see you, they'll get a glimpse of who I am. But unfortunately, sadly, the tragedy goes like this. They said, no, we don't want to. In fact, they turned their backs on God, started to adopt all of the other Canaanite practices and gods and goddesses of the time. And that was reflected in the way in which they treated one another appallingly. They were supposed to be the people of light, but they became the people of darkness. So God said to them again, I want you to change. They said, no. I want you to change. They said, no. I want you to change or else. And they said, no. And he said, if you don't change and if you don't reflect me to the world, I'm going to bring the Babylonian nation. They're going to come down from the north. They're going to judge you. And they're going to call you to account. And they said, no. And so under King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC, the one thing that happened that was beyond the imagination of any Jewish person at the time, would be that God would abandon them, the city would be destroyed, and God would allow his temple to be 
absolutely decimated, the place where heaven and earth connected. And that's what happened in 587. And then Nebuchadnezzar drew huge, vast loads of people, as they did back in those ancient times, to come and dwell in modern-day Iraq, that eventually was also in modern-day Iran. And this is where the story picks up with Nehemiah. Because even in the midst of that remnant, God made a promise. He said, after 70 years, I'm going to send you back. I haven't forgotten you. You're still my children, but you're going to rebuild the temple. And they did, the heaven and earth connection place, the place where God dwelt. But the walls of the city were still broken down. It was 140 years later after the temple had been rebuilt that Nehemiah steps into the scene. Okay, that's the backstory. You ready? We go to the front story now. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, all the way in Persia, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. A journey of a thousand steps begins with one simple question. If you had said to Nehemiah that in the morning he woke up, when he was pouring his wheat bix out and sprinkling on his muesli up top and warming up his milk in the microwave and pouring it on, that he was about to begin to have his world turned upside down and that he was going to shape literally the lives of thousands of people and it was going to begin today, he probably would have gone back to bed. <laughs> but he asked a question. How are the people, my family, back in Jerusalem, whilst I'm all the way 15 1,500 kilometers in the citadel of Susa, how are they? And this is what the answer came. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It's at this very moment that Nehemiah gets really uncomfortable. He gets so uncomfortable and it affects him so profoundly that it's going to begin to shape his world for weeks and then into years. Because as he thinks about it, it's as though God pours his heart into Nehemiah's and he realizes the great trouble is not only for his family, but also for his kinsmen and women who are dwelling in that place. The walls have broken down, which means that the Jewish people, the people who are supposed to reflect who God is back into the world, are in distress. They're vulnerable. They still don't have their identity. Anyone can come and, 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 and pillage them. Anyone can come and pluck them out from the place where they dwell. There is no security. And they live in disgrace because they were supposed to be a reflection of who God is, but they weren't being. They were just a, a rubble, a shambles. And so this is how Nehemiah responds. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Wow. I wonder if you're here this morning and whether you kind of believe in God or not, there's moments in your life when you have found yourself receiving most difficult news, where you have found yourself just sitting and weeping and mourning, overwhelmed with grief. At our Alpha course this last week, the daytime one that's been going, we were asking the question, how and why should you pray? And in that conversation... Part of it acknowledged that even for people who are checking out God, there's moments in our lives when grief comes our way or tragedy or heartache or, or difficulty where we find ourselves calling out to someone or something beyond us 
for help. Well, this is Nehemiah. And he hears the news. And it leads him to enter into this space of of desperation and mourning, so much so that he loses his appetite, says he fasts and he prayed before the God of heaven to do something. And so this is what he prayed. He, he, he prays this huge, big, bold prayer, and we get to read it and understand what he's asking. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. He's praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, 1,500 kilometers away. I confess, he goes on, the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we have committed against you. I find this fascinating because here in this this state of mourning and grief that Nehemiah enters into for people he doesn't know, his family for sure, is that he begins to, if you like, embrace the, the history and the tragedy of why they're there in the first place. If you like... Nehemiah wasn't prepared to pass the buck and blame someone else. So he steps back with the bigger picture and asks the question, why? Why are we here? Why are we in this state in the first place? And he identifies it down the bottom where he says, actually, the reason we're here in this predicament is because of us. We are the ones who said no to God We are the ones over centuries who turned our back on God. We are the ones who embraced all the other gods and goddesses of the world around about us. So we are here because of us. There's a funny word in the Bible we use for this kind of language. It starts with R. It's called repentance. You might look at Nehemiah and say, hey, that wasn't your fault, Nehemiah. You weren't there with the group that did it over all those centuries. Why should you take the blame for them? Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's at this moment that Nehemiah steps back and goes, I, as part of the whole, just want to acknowledge this before God. I confess that we did this. You know, the lengths that you and I go to to blame others are just phenomenal. Have you known that? Something happens in your home, something happens in your house, in your workplace, and the, the level and the degree by which you want to give someone else the blame is just profound. I was talking with someone this week, and they said, I don't know how, but they were in a squad car with a policeman recently. And the policeman said, see this person in front? They're on their phone. You can see it. He said, yeah, I can, I can see they're on their phone. He said, this person has no idea that I'm behind them. They are so engrossed in being on their mobile phone while I'm behind them that they can't even tell. He said, I'll tell you this. They are so engrossed in being on their mobile phone that I can put my lights on and they still won't know. So he did. He put his lights on. Drove behind the person. No response whatsoever. They said, see, completely engaged in their phone. He said, I could actually put the sound on with the lights and they still won't know that it's me. Put the sound on. The person's on their phone looking around as though it's to someone else. Someone else's police car's getting on them. And he said, eventually the person on their phone actually realized it was for them. So as soon as they realized it was for them, the person said to me, they did this with their phone. They just dropped it behind their back like this. Right? And sat there and pulled over. 
So the policeman got out of the car and walked over to the driver and said, you've been on your phone. And the person said, no, officer, I have not been on my phone at all. He said, we've been watching you for the last few minutes driving along the road. You have been on your phone. He said, I don't have my phone here. I don't have any phone at all. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, so the police officer said, could you please step out of the car? And he stepped out of the car and the man put up his arms and he said, see, I don't have any phone. And the police officer said to him, could you please turn around? He said, I don't want to turn around. He said, you can either turn around or walk around the back. He said, ah, you got me. I was on my phone. The degree to which human beings go to blame someone else or not take responsibility for their actions is profound, is it not? The fresh breath of air, Nehemiah, finally someone stands up and says, it was us. This isn't like a footballer confession. If I have, then I am sorry. This is just owning it. And he goes on and says this, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But now it turns. If you return to me, God, you said these words and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, even in Susa, the great citadel in Persia, I will gather them from, the, from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place because we were supposed to reflect your name. Wow. Nehemiah is calling on God the creator of heaven and earth, and he's calling him back for his language and saying, you said though, you promised. So I'm calling you God on your promise. Would you do something? And then it goes on. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Which man? We find out. Because it says, I was cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, the most powerful ruler in the history of the world at that time. I mean, you think Donald Trump is making waves? This is Donald Trump on steroids. This is the most powerful man in the land of Persia. And we discover that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearers had a wonderful task. They had the task of choosing the right wine for the right meal and tasting it, not just because it could make them feel really nice on the inside, but so they could prove that no one was trying to poison the king. And so he had this profound role in the royal palace to actually taste and deliver the food and the wine to the most powerful man in the kingdom of the world's he was cupbearer to the king, which came with a tagline, if you mess up, you're in big trouble as well. Cupbearers could come and go with the blink of an eye. But Nehemiah in this place was prepared to leverage all of his, the authority that he had, being close to the king, to scheme a plan and to shape a world so that his discomfort would be felt as other people's comfort in the task that he was thinking of doing. And so it goes on and it says this, in the month of Nisan, chapter 2, 1 and 2, in the month of Nisan, that's four months after he started to pray, four months after he first heard the words of what was happening back in Jerusalem, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, 
I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence ever before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but the sadness of the heart. This is the first time that, if you like, Nehemiah had let his guard down. Praying and fasting and mourning for the plight of his people, he actually comes before the king and the king notices that all is not well. He's been waiting for this day and let's see how it unfolds. I was very much afraid at the moment the king said, why aren't you happy? You see, to be in the king's presence, you need to be happy. You don't need to be sad. Sad people are eliminated. Happy people, the sanguines, they remain. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. This is good political speak. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Wow. This is the first moment that Nehemiah actually unburdens his discomfort to the king. And this is how the king replies. What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. You see, the backstory to this comment just here is only about 13 years earlier, this same king had said, enough with the wall building. I don't want any other smaller nation state to build up defenses against me, so no more building the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knows he's going to the most powerful king in the world to ask him to change his mind. If you are in leadership circles, you would call this right now the ask moment. Because Nehemiah is about to take on a huge ask. Some call it the big, hairy, audacious goal, the BHAG moment. I call it the gulp moment. Because this is what he says to the king. Well, king, I want to go back and I want to rebuild the walls. I want you to send me with authority, so send a notice to say that I'm coming as the governor. What I want you to do is actually give me access to the king's prime um, timber in his forests, and I want you to send me and let me go and do the job. Wow. Big, hairy, audacious goal. And this is how he responds. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my requests. You see, it's at this moment that Nehemiah could have stepped back and said, hey, I must have chosen the right wine. Or maybe I got the king on a good day. But no, he doesn't. He risks everything. He leverages what he has in his hands, the little bit of authority and the, the ear of the king himself, leverages his own life. He makes a huge, bold, audacious request. And when the king says yes, Nehemiah doesn't step back and go, that was all me in my doing. It was just a coincidence. It's actually God was the one who was gracious and he was the one who granted me my request. It was God. It was God. It was God. This week, you and I, we have woken up to the most appalling scene, and there's one particular image that should have stuck in your mind. The image of a three-year-old little boy by the name of Aylan. Yeah? Anyone see that? On the beach in Turkey. He was not alive. 
And when you and I saw an image like that, I'm sure that part of us just went, let's flick it over, let's flick it over, let's flick it over. Why? Because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And all of our lives over here in our space in called Melbourne, in all of our houses that we dwell in, are designed to make us feel comfortable, aren't they? There's a little panel over there that you can press the button on the side. It regulates the thermostat. When I understand what God's kind of call is for people's lives like you and I, when I understand the words of Jesus, I think he wants us to be like thermostats and not thermometers. You see, a thermostat reflects the temperature of the room around about you. But a thermostat shapes it. A thermostat actually shapes it. You want the temperature to be 22, you just move it to 22. You want it to be 18, you move it to 18. You want it to be 30, you zip that thing all the way up. I believe that God's created human beings not just to be thermometers, but to be thermostats. The good news of Jesus' life is that when someone accepts him as the one who's risen from the dead, who's actually the son of God come for them, he does something. He pours his love and his power into them and he changes their thinking. So if you like, they become thermostats and not just thermometers. And here's Nehemiah testing his levels to be a thermostat. You see, we see that picture on the television of that little boy and we flick it off and we just change the temperature in a room, if you like. We just have fluff the pillows a little bit and we go, that's really tragic, isn't it? But what can I do? My friends, have you ever considered that God wants to make you uncomfortable and wants you to sit in your discomfort so that he might actually move people like you and I to do his bidding. The band's going to come up in a moment. They're going to play. But as they do, I want to ask you this. Are you more of a thermometer or a thermostat? You might say to me, Troy, but I can't be a Nehemiah kind of person because, I mean, he had leverage and I didn't. He had the ear of the king and I didn't. All I've got is just what's in my hand. I believe that Jesus might speak to you this morning and say, I'll take that. But the challenge in our lives is that we want to move from discomfort to comfort so quickly that we can miss the voice of God speaking to us in the everyday course of our lives. We're at school. We see someone over in the yard and no one's talking to them. Maybe they've been bullied and we can just go, oh, that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then you walk away to your comfort zone. Well, you might have missed the very voice of God speaking to you and saying, no, I want you to shape your world. Be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Go over and help that young person. Be a friend to them. Shape their world and allow me to shape yours. When I was a young man growing up, I remember a pastor walking up and down on a platform and saying these words, give me young, one young man, give me one young woman who will open up their hearts and their lives to God. Just open it and say, here I am, use me. And who knows what kind of way 
God might use them and shape them to impact their world. In church circles, we call it a calling. God reaching out and grabbing you, disturbing you, making you so uncomfortable for not just days but weeks. This isn't a knee-jerk reaction. This is God calling you and your life and saying, I want you to be a thermostat if you would just bend your knee, if you would just open your heart and say, here I am, God, use me. When's the last time you heard God calling you? Maybe it's because we move too quickly from discomfort to comfort. So I would encourage you this week, go and Google the three-year-old called Aylan. And if it's right with you, watch it. Stare at that little lifeless body. Say, God... What do you want to say to me? Because I just so easily want to move from being uncomfortable to being comfortable. That's the way our world works. If you're here this morning and you're a young man or woman and you haven't opened up your heart fully to God, then maybe through the words of Nehemiah, you might hear his voice saying, I want you to be uncomfortable. And sit in it. So my spirit might make you a world shaper, a city shaper, a home shaper, a school shaper. Be courageous. Be courageous. And hear God calling your name this week my friends did you know there's a God who loves you who might take your uncomfortableness and your pain and your grief and your sorrow and if you hand it back to him I've discovered over the years that God uses your sorrows and your griefs to shape other people's worlds for his good. As these guys sing right now, you might want to just quietly pray. You might want to quietly reflect or you might want to quietly sing back to Jesus words of life about him being a strong God. And as you do, I would encourage you to pray the simple prayer, God, would you make me uncomfortable? I dare you to. Make me uncomfortable. Make me a thermostat. Shape your world for good.